0: wishy heart of enterprise IT. We're joined this week by a special guest, Rachel Chalmers. Rachel is a partner and head of corporate services at Alchemist. Uh, She comes to Alchemist from Autodesk, and she used to also be a venture capitalist, although we don't hold that against her. Uh, She messed around with some really interesting companies, uh, leading investments in Docker, Wit AI, Unikernel, and IO, which is a company I personally have been following pretty closely. And before that, she was an industry analyst, which is where actually Lilac and I first met Rachel. Uh, She was at 451 Research, which has since been acquired by Standard & Poor, but is still going as an independent brand under that umbrella. And there she was the first analyst to cover VMware, Cloudera, Splunk, and also BMC Software, which is where Lilac and I were at the time. So welcome, Rachel. Thanks for joining us.
1: It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Welcome. So I was super interested in having you on the call, in part because of that experience, because you've seen a whole set of different viewpoints on the industry. And that's kind of the theme of this podcast, also between us hosts, the various places that we've been and the various viewpoints that we've had on the industry. So... My first question would be, could you tell us a little bit how that differs being an analyst, being a VC, and now what you're doing at Alchemist, which is interestingly different again?
1: Oh yeah, I've seen some things. I um I, I came into the industry in the nineties. I was a starry-eyed tech idealist. I I thought the internet would bring us closer together. Uh boy is my face red. Uh it's been a journey for sure. Um The analyst piece was really the bulk of my early career. I I came into being an analyst from being a tech journalist. Um, With 451, we were really trying to uh, address what we saw as some deficiencies in in the analysis space. Um, At the time we started 451, the companies didn't cover super early stage companies. And to us, of course, that was where the exciting stuff was happening. That's how I got to be... You know, someone who talked to Diane Green when VMware was her and Mendel and three engineers. Um, Someone who talked to Splunk when when it was, you know, just five guys and a, a cracked out idea. So that was super fun. It was hard to sell that stuff because the analyst model depended on these large sales to enterprises. You know, you never get fired for buying something that's in the right quadrant of the Gartner Magic Quadrant. So we ended up selling a lot of stuff to VCs and to these early stage companies, um, and eventually I got the VC's attention. Um, and one of them was using up so much of my time that they decided it made sense to hire me full time instead. Going from analysis to VC was uh, a real um, learning experience, shall we say? Um, analysis is, is candidly, it's brutally hard work. You know, I was writing hundred thousand words a year for thirteen years. I was uh meeting ten, fifteen companies a week and writing about them. I, I would have days at conferences where uh my time was blocked out solidly for eight hours with with one-on-one meetings with clients. So I thought VC was gonna be cruisy and and in some ways it was. It was it was certainly less um actual heavy lifting. Uh, and i i again i really loved meeting the early stage entrepreneurs the engineers i found the finance stuff really hard and not because i'm bad at math i can i can do math um, just because uh finance is is honestly a service industry it um exists to support making shiny things and my real interest is in the making of shiny things so i would get very very frustrated when for example i brought charity in to to meet the partners and the partners said well she doesn't look like a a, um, a CEO to us, and this is Charity Majors, who at the time was was putting together the company that became Honeycomb, which is now worth north of a hundred million. Um, she and Edith Hardbore of of Launch Darkly uh, and and Christine Spang of Nihilus, they they sure looked like CEOs to me. They were building amazing shiny things, but um, finance is about managing risk and. To those folks, there was clear risk associated with investing in CEOs who didn't match the stereotype of Steve from Stanford. And all of these incredible women engineers I brought into, into pitch did not match that stereotype. And so that ended up being an insuperable barrier for me in, in traditional VC. I spent a year um, kicking around with my good friend Alexis de Ratt St. James trying to raise money for Merry Ventures. Um, Alexis is still going but we didn't manage to raise the fund unfortunately. So then I took a hard left turn into corporate IT. Um Sam Ramji who's one of my favorite people in the world had taken on the task of building the cloud business at Autodesk. Um, And it turns out to be very, very challenging to take a 40-year-old, highly successful desktop software company and try to explain to it that you don't need a separate database for every single product and a database that has to fit within the specs of a 40-year-old workstation anymore. Um, They just don't believe you. Uh, So I call my Autodesk experience my extremely well-compensated MBA. It was a crash course in all of the ways in which technocrats can fly into a large, um, uh, well-capitalized um, company and not manage to make their very important case to to the lifers there.
0: Yeah. I mean, we kind of saw that, Lilac and I saw that at BMC as well. Yeah. Uh, BMC yeah. had all the bits, the technical bits for the cloud transition. And I was out there evangelizing quite hard you know, we can do this, we've got all this amazing tech, we can plug it all together. And what uh, I think we can say by now what sank it was the financials. There was the inability to do SaaS, to recognize recurring revenue and explain that to Wall Street in a way that their current investors would understand, which is why you see so many companies at that point, they go private again for a little while, do the transformation undercovers, and then return to the public markets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's all sorts of other internal commercial factors that nobody's willing to grasp the net all until it was just too late. And so now ServiceNow owns that market.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and to Autodesk's credit, and specifically to the credit of the CEO, Andrew Anagnost, um, they managed the, the SaaS transformation. They We arrived there just as they'd just spent three years um, transforming their, their entire accounting infrastructure so that they could take subscription revenue. And that was enormously good for their stock price. Andrew sold it really well. The the um, uh, engineers who were working on the backend software worked the midnight hours to to make it all happen. And that was a three-year boost to their stock price. The transformation to the cloud needed to come in and do the same thing over the subsequent three years. It turned out to be even more culturally challenging to to, to make that transition. So still in progress. I think
2: my own experience with these sorts of things, when we think about technologies that map very well to cloud environments, and I've experienced it at BMC and then at subsequent companies, there's the financial model that has to tweak. And it's very difficult to wean yourself off the pop of a perpetual license. That is a lovely little nugget of glory every quarter when it closes. And then the second problem is that uh, my perception is that a product manager who's extremely good at software product management may not have a clue in transitioning to a service. Yeah. And and that is a real important change in the way that you basically do your job as a product manager. Running a service is very different than running a piece of software. The capabilities of the technology are Um, deceptively similar, right? Because the XYZ software looks the same to the user, whether it's hosted or whether it's on-prem, but from a product management, life cycle, delivery, everything, it's just fundamentally different. And without without that talent and experience, I think the idea that these same individuals could just sort of shift their mindset um, has proven over and over again to me to be just like patently false.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: It's that culture eating strategy for breakfast again, isn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. And well, it's experience. And there's so much about Autodesk that I love. Um the the regenerative design software um that they built to to build these like um HR Geiger um pedals for cars. You know, that they, they can actually get algorithms to redesign auto parts and, and make them lighter weight and stronger super cool stuff. If you're ever in San Francisco and you get a chance to visit the Autodesk Gallery um, at the Embarcadero headquarters, it's full of just these absolutely beautiful design and and architecture examples of what their software can do. And there's a huge cadre of people within Autodesk who totally get it. Um, And I ended up getting drawn towards the human-centered design folks because they were in the vanguard of people fighting for the cloud because they understood that Without agile and, and lean development techniques and and this service mindset of release, early release, often, they were not going to be able to meet the needs of their amazing user base. And so the other piece of my MBA at, at Autodesk was just getting religion around human-centered design, which was great because it set me up really well for the gig I'm in now. I had been involved with Alchemist for a long time. Uh, It's Ravi Balani's brainchild. He is a a lecturer in entrepreneurship at Stanford um, Engineering School. And it's the leading, it's it's the best kept secret in the Valley, to be honest. It's the leading accelerator that focuses only on enterprise. And with my enterprise heritage, I got involved with it early on and had been a coach and mentor for years. Ravi and I had been talking for a long time about what a full-time role within Alchemist would look like for me. And after I came out of Autodesk, um, there was an opportunity to run a white label and internal accelerators for for corporates and governments. Uh, and I landed in there and it turned out to be all about human-centered design. So we just teach customer discovery from day one. We get these often corporate lifers and we shove them out of the building and we say, go talk to your customers And somewhere between 10, 15, 20 customer interviews, there's this transformation. And they come back to me in the one-on-ones and they're like, I get it. I get it. I finally understand. And it's so liberating. It's, It's so exciting to get these folks who very often have been in a corporate structure where there's like three layers of indirection between them and the person who actually derives value from their product. And get them into that relationship where they're talking about the value that their product or service can actually provide. It's really, it's really fun work and I'm really enjoying it.
0: Yeah, this is what's most fascinating to me about the enterprise end of IT. That people assume that it's all dry and boring. And actually if if you do it right, it's where you can have a lot more fun compared to B2C. Not that I've done B2C myself, but the impression that I get is B2C is very much just a numbers game. It ends up getting depersonalized purely by virtue of that. Enterprise, it has its own different set of failure modes. The classic one used to be, certainly, that because the buyer and the user were generally not the same person, you would end up with a disconnect between the needs uh, of the two. And that's what human-centered design, in my understanding, was... Largely attempting to address, but you don't get quite as much of a gaslighting dark pattern UI, etc. That, that you get in the B two C world in the app store type environment.
1: Well, and there's also just the way to sell grassroots into the enterprise, which is my favourite. It was pioneered by Splunk in my view, but but Docker and, and Slack have capitalised on it really well. Which is where you build a product that's so incredibly compelling and makes somebody you know. 10 times better at their job and sets them up for the next five years of their career. And that person will go to their manager and say, you have to buy this for me.
0: Yeah, they'll do the selling for you.
1: Um, Problem solved. Mike hates those people. (laughs) And and that's what human-centered design is about.
3: One of the biggest worries we always have is bottom-up software in in the enterprise because it's always coming from a a group of individuals who are probably right but haven't really looked at all the risk to it. But yeah, most of the times they're right. And yeah, I mean, bottom-up is... Is gaining traction, huge. But if, I think the sales when they hit us in the enterprise are a bit. Uh, we we feel like we're uh, dealing with a sleazy salesman sometimes. Let's
1: put it that way. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's all my fault. <laughs> I apologize. Um, and we are <laughs> learning to incorporate risk into that equation. We are, you know, obviously looking at the risks of data breach. We we work a lot around health tech, so we think a lot about HIPAA. We work in Europe, so we have to think more um, uh, stringently about privacy than that we would if we were just. Confer- to the U.S. Um, and, And fundamentally, we don't want to burn people. We don't want to burn companies. But these large corporations that we work with exist to hedge risk for everybody involved with them. It's natural for them to have an immune reaction to any kind of innovation. But at the same time, one of the biggest risks they face is disruption. And so unless they can learn this discipline of, you know, connecting with their customers, reacting fast to market changes, Um, shipping code very rapidly, Uh, somebody else is going to do it for them.
0: Yeah, when the first step you had to do as a startup was raise $10 million to buy a bunch of SunKit to even start to build and run your service, that was a major, major hurdle. And these days you can get started with free tier stuff or spending single digit hundreds of dollars with cloud services and get something up and running that is literally the same tech that all the big players are using. That's a huge leveling effect. But what the big corporations still have, if they can get the traction, if they can put the power down, is the know-how. It's no longer, you know, you can buy a bigger server, but it is, you do have more experience somewhere within the walls if you can break down the organizational barriers to leveraging it. And part of that is also accepting people with the purple hair.
1: (laughs) I've been the technocrat who's been flown into a traditional industry, in my case HR tech, um, saying I've got the algorithms, I've got all of the answers. And and that's a losing strategy from the startup side because um, in Silicon Valley, we discount domain knowledge. We discount institutional knowledge. We we, we don't accord it the respect it deserves. One thing I've really enjoyed about moving into corporate innovation is that you can say to a PhD engineer in a large German uh, industrial company, your experience and your wisdom doesn't exist in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley cannot do what you do. So you can learn to speak the language of the lean startup and create something that, that won't be easily disrupted because of your 30 years of knowledge of how to build, you know, a waste incinerator or factory automation. Um, And that feels really meaningful to me. I mean, my whole zigzag career has been a search for meaning and, um, being able to connect people with um, the information that helps them to hedge their risk and and make better and more sustainable and more renewable products and, and get the five, next five years of their career, that feels really meaningful to me.
3: You know, you, you spoke about um, the kind of Autodesk move to the cloud. There's a lot of companies have moved to the cloud, but often we see some who yeah, just put the product on the cloud and call it the cloud. And when you start to peel away the layers, it looks terrible. How do companies avoid that? I mean, maybe from my practitioner hat, like we sometimes enjoy dealing with kind of the the startup company startup mentality, because we know that there's a bit more agility where there's an incorrect mindset in some of these older companies. So the Autodesk story, we don't hear too often, but what prevents other companies from doing that? What, what What is it at the root? I mean, it's more than just the financial side of it, isn't it?
1: Yes. The way that corporations hedge risk is exactly the same way that startups do. They find a repeatable, scalable sales model and they repeat it and scale it. And so I don't think these companies come in with incorrect ideas. They come in with survival strategies that may have outlived their usefulness. So dealing with changes is traumatic, no matter whether you're a person or a company, finding that the set of survival strategies that have served you really well for the last 40 years are actually impeding your performance going forward. That's a, that's a real existential crisis for any person or organization. And I think Where the technocrats really fall short is when we fly in and we have, you know, maths and we have statistics and we have charts and we show them when we say you're going to die. We have a terrible bedside manner in Silicon Valley. We're so bad at it. (laughs) It's partly because of this pathology where we've um, demonized the humanities and elevated STEM for the last 20 years. Like the humanities had nothing to teach us. The humanities teach us what to do when STEM fails you know when when the situation is completely unacceptable and there's really nothing you can do about it what do you do you know you you lean into techniques from psychology you lean into techniques from sociology and ethology there are all of these bodies of of wisdom which silicon valley generally ignores which teach you how to address change how to address loss how to how to um metabolize things that are happening that, that are not fun for everybody. You know, Silicon Valley is, Oh, just put a ping pong table in and have nerf wars. That's not going to work. Those are
0: soft skills. They're not useful. We want engineers (laughs) around here. (laughs) I, I
1: saw someone the other day saying we should stop calling them soft skills and start calling them core skills. And I think that's really true. I love to tell the story of a friend of mine that I've actually known for 25 years since college, who, is probably on the autism spectrum, is a genius engineer, um, had a literally catastrophic early career with, with women, um, just a train wreck of relationship after relationship. I remember going into his apartment one day and he had an entire bookshelf of books by great women authors, you know, Jeanette Winnison, Barbara Kingsolver, and it was so unusual. And I said to him, are you trying to learn how women work from the inside? And he said, yes. so this is why we stayed friends he is currently a very senior VP at a very large internet company he's ludicrously successful he's got like 700 people reporting to him or something and it's literally because he taught himself core skills from the outside in the engineering effortless for him the human relations a black box and he was so curious and so tenacious that he didn't rest until he figured it out and he's now one of the best people people I know there should be more of it.
2: I'm presently sort of in a situation where I'm dealing with a lot of this sort of thing in my own professional life. And I joke around about being a corporate rabbi um, with my actually legitimate uh, women of the cloth friends that I spend a lot of time with. And and if you if you map my experiences professionally to the experiences of a, of a true uh, religious leader, um, you'll find a weird amount of of similarity, actually, right? Like, I obviously don't pull out chapter and verse and say, maybe we should consider this in the context of what Mark said about whatever, right? I, don't, I never do that, right? Also rabbi, so not going to do that. Um, But but separately, the, the sort of, I'm identifying that there's tension in this corner of the organization, these people might be insecure and uncomfortable due to whatever, we need to reach out, we need to, ch- you know, check in with them. And then when you have that conversation, it doesn't feel, it's not about the engineering, right? right? It's about Um, existential angst, like you say, because change is change and people react differently to it. And then there's downstream impacts of people not handling that because they can create ripple effects throughout an organization. But all of that weirdly could break something as basic as a Slack implementation if you let it, because everybody was going to just sort of freak out and excise this potential threat in the organization by what is nothing but emotions and soft skills.
1: Yeah, culture beats strategy every time and and culture is humans and and humans are flawed and imperfect and we mean well. Ultimately, humans are the only thing that matters in in all of this work that we're doing. They're incredibly frustrating and and, um, annoying to work with and they're not uh, the best actors in their own economic self-interest, but they're also the most important thing in whatever we do.
0: And I miss seeing them in three dimensions, which is something I've not been doing for the last year and a bit.
1: Well, that's the other thing is Silicon Valley really struggles. I mean, you know, Zoom is great. All of the video conferencing, all of the techniques that we've, we've dropped in to address the fact that we can't meet in person anymore are great. But we're completely ignoring the other aspect of the pandemic and the insurrection and the climate crisis that, you know, everybody here has been running on empty for 18 months now. You know, we're, we're all... Um, down to our last fumes and and the technocrats just don't have a meaningful way to talk about that whereas poets and therapists are enjoying a renaissance surprise you cannot get um, therapy uh, in any of the big city centers in america because they're all booked out for for six months
0: amazing that's something i did not know so Short on therapists, short on dogs. It certainly seems (laughs) to be speaking to some sort of need (laughs) people had.
1: We're chimpanzees. We evolved to live in Neolithic villages. We evolved to raise children collectively. And being from Australia, I'm acutely aware of of the clash between the Stone Age and and the 18th century folk who showed up in in Sydney Cove. The Darug people of my hometown, Sydney, Sydney Harbour was so unbelievably rich in food that you could spend three hours a day, collecting some mussels, picking some berries, have enough to eat. You spend the rest of the day sitting around telling stories. And grind culture has robbed us of that absolutely necessary, let's just sit here in the sand and chew the fat and tell stories about our ancestors. It's unbelievably important to to make people resilient. And the Darug people are still around. They're, they're, they're still in Sydney, uh, painting their paintings, telling their stories—that's um, how you survive catastrophic change.
0: Sounds like a decent lifestyle. Uh, also, uh, you know, Yuval Noah Harari, of course, wrote about this, is saying civilization is a trap. When some stupid person invented agriculture, and nothing has been as good since, precisely because we used to be able to uh, spend a lot more time on social relationships instead of social hierarchies. It's an interesting thing to think about. I'm really glad that book came out pre-pandemic, by the way, because my reading has gone way down. Yet another thing, to, like sidebar that I hate about uh, Silicon Valley-driven gamification metrics on everything, my iPad and system setting goals for my reading and telling me if I've read enough today, <laughs> which I hate in the moment. But it is actually kind of interesting to look back and see that the last uh, year-plus – My reading just took a nosedive, Uh, my level of concentration, just the doom scrolling, those certain amounts of doom scrolling that takes up time in in your schedule. Uh, But just my willingness to read has gone down.
1: I mean, thank God for the the golden age of TV, I think. Um, Things like Chernobyl are, are saving a lot of us. I really believe in storytelling. I really believe in the power of storytelling to access kinds of intelligence that aren't affordable to more sort of metrics driven stuff. I, I love Silicon Valley. I live here. I've lived here for for 23 years. I've lived here long enough to see all of its flaws very very clearly. And um I love it so much that I want it to be better. And so if if Silicon Valley yeah. would just crack a book, that would be awesome.
0: Yeah, what's always struck me about the valley itself, not uh, not the city, but the valley is just how sterile it was to to drive through. Forget walking through. That's completely impossible. But driving through or what was really interesting to me was back in the day when Lilac and I actually was right after Lilac had left the company. I found myself going to our San Jose office a lot and we would stay in the Marriott and the office was down the road opposite the, the Cisco campus. And there's a tram that goes from right in front of the Marriott to right in front of the office I was going to. And it cost, I think, $2 and there's wifi on board. It just sit and go and it would take 20 minutes. Literally everyone else in the company was flying in from Texas and they would pay, I think it was $35 to, to Valet Park, their rental, and sit in traffic for an hour and get into the office all stressed. And so that was already a cultural difference right there for this European. But also the the tram rides, it, look out, it's just low-rise office park after low-rise office park. And you know that amazing things are being concocted inside each of those nondescript buildings. But the, the physical landscape is... Just stultifying, I think is the word. And someone did actually do an ethnographic transect of Silicon Valley. They they walked it and reported uh, on what that experience was like. This was a few years ago already. Uh, It was interesting to read that as well. I'll try to dig up the link for the show notes and send it to you as well, Rachel.
1: Yeah, I mean, people who come here from elsewhere think 101, and that's totally valid. 101 is probably the ugliest freeway in the entire world, and it's unbelievably depressing. But you only have to go a few miles away from it to to find, you know, the Arab community in in Fremont, which has given us Reams, which is my favorite bakery. Um, you only have to go a few miles the other way and you're over the hill into Half Moon Bay where there's still, you know, the slow coast farms producing so much of our food. I, I get a, um, a CSA box from there. Um, We've got a goat farm that that produces the best cheese. You know, it's the same Bay Area that gives us Alice Waters, who who was so unbelievably influential on how everyone in America eats and and getting us towards this more Mediterranean raw foods diet. It's the same San Francisco that was a pioneer in labor relations with my countryman, Harry Shepard in the IWW. And then after the war, a, a magnet for gay men. Um. All of those threads exist in the culture of the Valley and everyone's like, oh, we're all going to up and move to Miami now. Well, Berkeley's not going anywhere. Stanford's not going anywhere. There is a, a core of um, anti-authoritarianism here in the Bay Area, which is is really what keeps me, keeps me loyal to the area. So, yeah, I, I agree that there is a Silicon Valley, which is just exhausting strip malls and, <laughs> and parking lots and, and low-rise offices and it's incredibly depressing, except for what goes on inside those places. But there's also, you know, Santa Cruz and its gardens. There's there's Point Reyes, which is a, a um, paleolithic prairie falling off into the sea. It's, it's a very complicated part of the world. And I, I just keep wanting to nudge it towards the, the good sides of it.
0: Oh, I love it. I miss traveling there. Well maybe once all the clubhouse people move to Miami then. Oh, please
1: from your lips to God's ears. <laughs>
0: do you do
3: you do you think the Miami, Austin and Portland thing that's happening now where people are getting up and moving is is it just a fad? I mean and maybe to share my view, I think like great people want to be around great people, but I I don't I think it'll I think they'll be happy for a little while, but I don't know if it's sustaining as other people think. What, what, what's your viewpoint there? I, I'd be interested from somebody who lives in, in Silicon Valley.
1: So there's two really interesting points that you raised: happiness and sustainability. And I think we need to tease those out. I think they're different. I think, and and my my producer Tyler is going to make a face at me now. I think there are people and and parts of your life where you skip around the world and you don't put down deep roots, and you're you know expanding your experience. I certainly did that. I I was very peripatetic in my 20s. It makes you very happy. It's not necessarily sustainable, particularly if you want to raise children or what have you. There's a time in your life where you want to pick a neighborhood and get to know your neighbors and um, join the the neighborhood emergency response team and um, join the buy nothing group and and actually have 20 year relationships with people who are going to be allo parents to your kids. That's a very different state of mind. I would venture to suggest a lot of the people who upstakes and move to Miami aren't in a situation where they need to think about stability for their children. Um, I think those kinds of, of engineering trade-offs that you make around you know, creating something stable for a couple of decades lead to a very different relationship with place. And I feel very fortunate. We we actually only planned to come to San Francisco for a couple of years and make our fortune and go home to Australia. I feel very fortunate that that plan didn't work out. And we were among the lucky few who did manage to raise children in San Francisco. It's an incredibly special place to grow up for a lot of reasons. Uh, but I think, you know, I, I have no real quarrel with people trying out Las Vegas, trying out Miami. Um, Austin's fantastic. I love Portland. My big kids going to read. Um, but I do think there's a kind of adulthood and it's not the only kind, but it is one kind of adulthood where you just pick a place and you watch the seasons turn for 20 years. And that leads to a very different relationship with your community.
0: A sense of place, definitely, and, and many people have made this connection that a lot of the the B two C, better the B two C products coming out of Silicon Valley, seem to be kind of bemused by the concept of a family, until a few years in when the engineers uh, start having their own kids and realize, oh wait a minute, we need to allow for this, and so Apple is adding finally the idea that there can be more than one person in the household and they might share apps and they might share a music library. They still haven't quite figured out that more than one person might want to watch the Apple TV and that not everyone should have the same uh, type of shows and home screen apps and things like that. But uh, we get around that too. I just removed YouTube from the Apple TV in the living room.
2: We only just recently realized that there was a thing called women and include that. in Oh yes. Health uh, app. So I was going to was mention great. that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a woman. more about that, Lila. It's strange, <laughs> because you'll never get there if you start with difference from a man. Right. You have to start fresh. It's a whole different right. thing. Right. There's an app for that.
1: What about if we what about That's if we right. just make our product pink? That's the first step.
2: Um, what you may find over time, though, is that there's a more nuanced appreciation of the target market.
0: And give that, that one female engineer that you hired, give her the pink shirt and stand her up on the That's 8th of right.
2: That's <laughs> right. But but not on administrative professionals' Can,
1: can you give a talk about diversity?
0: Uh, this is all starting to get scarily real. Uh, <laughs> But last thing Sorry, I will say, there's brand. a <laughs> uh, there is a Twitter account called uh, Man Who Has It All that's hilarious, and I recommend it to everyone. I, I continuously <laughs> posting questions like, "Okay, we we all know about footballers, but what do you call a man footballer, a male footballer? What sh- what special term should we use for that?"
1: <laughs> and and this all comes back to your point about hierarchy. I mean, if we are hierarchy obsessed, if we live in that zero sum game, if we if we come from a place of scarcity. You know, we assign half of our children to be inferior at birth and we say, oh, you're just going to earn 60% of what he earns. Sorry about that. Ends the breaks. If we come from a place of abundance, and it's absurd that we don't, I mean, this is my 90s tech idealism coming through. We could feed everyone in the world. We could feed everyone in the world with three hours work a day, and then we could spend the rest of our time sitting around telling stories. Why don't we do that? Because 50 guys have half of America's wealth, you know. I, I tend to think progressive taxation is a is a good idea. That's the San Francisco in me.
0: Yeah, yeah you should see the, the, the tax hits on my paycheck here in Italy. Uh,
1: <laughs> I- oh, oh. my heart goes out to you. Please go have a gelato and make yourself feel better.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I walked into that one. <laughs> but I was going to say, when I had the opportunity to move to the U.S., and I totted up the cost of cost of living in the Bay Area, the cost of health care, for a family. And I compared it to just paying my taxes. I was like, eh, okay, I guess I'll pay my taxes. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, you know, gelato.
1: Yeah, and I've, I I grew up with free higher education, free uh, health care. It was absolutely great. I wouldn't be where I am without it. I wish I had that for my kids. I would gladly pay higher taxes. But the truth is, Americans do pay high taxes. We just get... Really bad returns on it. Um, we we don't have a, a federal societal commitment to things like educating children and making sure even poor people have healthcare, and we're reaping the whirlwind.
0: Indeed. We wandered a little way from enterprise IT, but I think that's good. I think that's part of what we try to do on the podcast is try to fit it into wider concerns. Uh, We had a whole episode about how burnt out we all were a a few weeks ago, and it was one of the best performing episodes so far. Uh, So I think that's absolutely uh, on brand for us. We normally do a thing, we close with recommendations. I do remember that we had a very fun conversation many years ago about obscure science fiction books. So have you been reading anything fun lately in that vein that you'd like to recommend?
1: Oh, God, yes. I have so much obscure science fiction I'd love to recommend. So I will call back to that conversation. I I recommended Verna Vinge's A Deepness in the Sky uh, and A Fire Upon the Deep, two books that he wrote in the late 80s, early 90s, which were unbelievably formative on my thought because in one of them, the character Pham, is digging down through the layers of the software on his starship and realizes that they, the clock started when humans first walked on the moon and your brain explodes and you go, it's Unix. It's Unix. Under it's there. a and Unix system. I know this. Because we've, got, <laughs> we've, got, exactly, we've got robots running Unix on the moon and we're not going to rip that stuff out. And Fam's title in that novel is a software archaeologist and that is was the first glimmer i had into the reality of how software lives in the world which is layer upon layer upon layer and nothing ever gets ripped out and the significance of a product like docker is that it's adding another layer of abstraction so that all of the pre-existing infrastructure can continue to run but you can build new functionality on top of it so Verna Vinge was like my my anchor for for a long long time the one I will recommend until I'm blue in the face now is Anne Leckie's Ancillary Justice series. I, I don't know if you've read them. Yeah,
0: I second that they recommendation. Are,
1: uh, uh, about <laughs> they are, I, I have listened to them so many times on audiobook now. Um, they're incredibly powerful books. Uh, they centre around the um, quest for vengeance of a character called Breck, who is a piece of an AI intelligence that once ran a ship. The ship has since been blown up and all of Breck's um, fellow uh, ancillaries have been destroyed. An ancillary is a person who has had Borg-like tech built into them so that the AI can control their body. And part of the um, narrative of the whole series is Breck coming to terms with the person that used to live in their body and, and arguably still does. And Breck coming to terms with the loss of the entire rest of her consciousness. It's an incredibly powerful book that talks about how we suffer under capitalism, how our autonomy is taken away from us and turned to higher purposes for the purpose of making money. And it's about everything I've been talking about today, about the core skills of um finding meaning, finding who you are as a person, um, making a place for yourself where you can earn your living in three hours a day and spend the rest of the time sitting around telling stories. Um, it's about justice and mercy. Um, it's it's just an absolutely beautiful and incredible series. Um, to that, I will add, and this is not at all obscure, uh, Martha Wells's Murderbot series, which um, follows... It works in something of a similar gener- genre. Uh, Murderbot is a sec unit, uh, which is also an augmented human um, that is in slavery. Uh, the Murderbot series deals even more explicitly with out of control capitalism and and its alternatives. So this renaissance of cyborg literature re- literally traces its back to the, the the cyborg traces its lineage back to the cyborg manifesto, and it's about What does it mean to be a person with autonomy and agency? enmeshed in this large system which does not have our best interests at heart and how can we exercise that autonomy to create a little bit more justice and a little bit more freedom for ourselves and for the people and
0: us. make time for watching tv
1: highly relevant to enterprise it I would <laughs> yeah, <venture. laughs>
0: indeed there's some fantastic <laughs> recommendations i've read the first two the murder bot books i've got them all piled up and then Lavi Tidar. yeah so he dropped uh some new stuff and uh, got distracted by that and Murderbot is still there in the to-read pile, which is vast and tottering and would fall on my head, but luckily it's all in pixel format. But thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This has been a fantastic conversation, as I had no doubt that it would. I know that uh, it was super early in your day for you to join us, but we'll let you go and get on with the rest of your day. And uh, yeah, that's it. So thanks from all of us. Uh, If you want to find more about Rachel Chalmers, we will put some info in the show notes. Uh, As for roll for enterprise you can find out more about us on Twitter at Roll4Enterprise. On uh, LinkedIn, there's a LinkedIn page in the show notes. Uh, The show notes also include the link to the theme music, which is by my good friend Renato Podesta. But otherwise, we will be talking to you all again next week. Thank you once again, Rachel.
3: Thank you, Rachel. Thank you,
1: everybody. Thank you so much for having me.